Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Robert Darnton, the author of A Literary Tour de France, The World of Books on the Eve of the French Revolution, and the book was published by Oxford University Press just this year. Hi there, Bob. Hello. Thank you for having me on your program. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about what originally got you interested in working on France? Well, you know, I'm asked that question often, especially by French people. They seem to be puzzled that an American (laughs) should be studying France. And so they ask me, you know, what interests you about France? My reply usually is, well, France is interesting. I mean, what could be more interesting than France? But the actual explanation is more complicated. I did my undergraduate work at Harvard. I got a scholarship to Oxford. And there I came under the influence of two rather formidable scholars, Richard Cobb, a great expert on the French Revolution, and Lord Shackleton, a great expert on the French Enlightenment. So they gave me a push in the direction of France, and I've never turned back. And how did you come to the history of books and literature? Ah, well, that's that's a more complicated question. Basically, when I began studying the history of books, the field really did not exist. In, mm-hmm. in fact, the very word history of books or history of the book I've never heard before I actually began doing it. <laughs> it was a strange to see a field grow up around my own research. What happened is I actually followed up a footnote when I was a student at Oxford that suggested that perhaps there were some unpublished letters by Jacques-Pierre Brissot, who led the Girondist wing in the French Revolution. So he was one of the dozen or so top revolutionaries. And I I was interested in him because he was one of the most uh, valuable enthusiasts about America, the American Revolution, Republican ideas coming out of uh, this strange country across the ocean. And I was basically... Uh, planning to do a study of Brissot. Well, I found a footnote with a reference to the Bibliothèque Publique et Universitaire de Neuchâtel, so the little municipal library in the town of Neuchâtel, Switzerland, which is just across the French border, but on the other side of the Jura Mountains. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just sent a letter off to the library saying, do you possibly have any letters by Jacques-Pierre Brissot. 
it cost uh, you know the, the the price of one stamp, and I thought it worthwhile. Well, they answered right away saying yes. We have a hundred and nineteen letters. Here is a photocopy of one of them, and the photocopy was spectacular. It had enough information for one to rethink the entire career of Brissot. Wow! That's what led me to Neuchâtel. I was planning to write a biography of Brissot. When I arrived there. I found, sure enough, there were the 119 letters, but they were surrounded by 50,000 letters from people who had to do with books. Everyone who had to do with books, not just authors, but booksellers, publishers, Mm -hmm. workers, you know, the people who made the ink, the people who made the paper. And it became clear to me as I got deeper and deeper into the archives that this was a subject, the history of books, how books were made, transported, diffused, and even read. So that's that's how I got into book history, and then I found that the other people were interested in the same questions, mm-hmm. and soon we were off. I mean, book history is now a flourishing discipline with it, its own reviews and conferences and diplomas and that kind of thing. So, Bob, rather than a study of famous books and authors or readership per se, this project focuses on the workings of the industry and emphasizes those who, and I'm quoting you here, functioned as crucial intermediaries in the dissemination of literature. So what makes this a approach so important, and what does it get us in terms of a different understanding of this period in the history of literature? Well, you know, there's a famous question asked by a famous French professor, Daniel Mornay, in 1910, what did the French read before the French Revolution? Mm -hmm. Now, Mornay thought he had found a way to answer that question, because to come across a large collection of the catalogs of private libraries, 500 printed catalogs, and he thought that if he could quantify the information, he could answer his question. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out that he made many mistakes. Uh, one of them was uh, the fact that catalogs had to be censored before they could be published and used for auctions. Morley didn't know that. So automatically, all of the illegal literature was eliminated from the source he studied. Mm. But his, his answer was a, was a famous answer because he found out of a, you know hundreds and hundreds of catalogs only one reference to Rousseau's social contract, uh, and that made him say more or less, "Look, the Bible of the French Revolution was not read in France before 1789. We have to rethink the whole." question of the ideological origins of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, that article has caused a lot of ink to be spilled. <laughs> People have been chasing the question for a long time. That's one of the things that's at stake. But there are other issues at stake, too. The one thing that I find fascinates me now that I've spent so much time actually since 1965 mm-hmm. in these manuscripts, 50,000 letters in the Swiss town and many in Paris that, that supplement and complement the Neuchâtel the, the sources. One thing that fascinates me is just the world of books itself, how it functioned, who were the people, what sort of lives did they lead in this industry? And 
finally, I've come to the view that I think one thing that historians want to do is to recreate a world, to make it, give it life, to show how pe- ordinary people lived their lives 200 or 300 years ago. And so that, in a way, is my ultimate goal, although I also want to come up with specific information about what the books actually were. So you described the project, Bob, at one point as one that gets at the feel and folkways of a particular kind of capitalism. Could you say a little bit more about this book as a, as a history of capitalism in this period? Well, you know, I did not set out to write business history. I'm a historian of ideas by training, and uh, most of my work has been in the field of cultural history. Mm-hmm. But when you actually read the commercial correspondence of booksellers and publishers and authors, of course, they are talking about making money. Right. So I'm not claiming that they didn't have other interests. But what comes through powerfully is uh, the desire to come up with coin, you know, what they call écus bien sonnante, mm-hmm. that is real bits of money, uh, there is a kind of greed and appetite for gain that uh, you see everywhere in this correspondence. I think it was part of a world that some economic historians call booty capitalism, Mm. uh, because it, it was a world without any limited liability. Therefore, people took enormous risks, but when they failed, the consequences were terrible. I found many, many letters or whole dossiers uh, that you read, uh, and you go from one letter to another to another, and you sense that this, say, bookseller in a, uh, an obscure town or city like Blois or Marseille or Lyon is having difficulty paying his bills of exchange. Mm-hmm. He overextends himself. And then he starts ordering more dangerous books than earlier because he needs to really make a lot of profit. They were more profitable. And then he goes under. Right. Frequently, you know, dossiers end with a, a letter from a neighbor or another local uh, tradesperson who says, disappeared, enrolled in the army has gone to the war in America, uh, left for Russia, left the keys under the door. That's a common refrain. His wife and children are begging at the steps of the church. So you sense disaster, imminent disaster, in the actual day-by-day commercial affairs of many of the more marginal characters. And this I found fascinating because it's the world of Balzac. Bob, the study comes at the history of the distribution, really, of books in France by focusing on, and you've mentioned it a couple of times already, the Swiss Société Typographique de Neuchâtel. And there's kind of two categories of questions I want to ask you about the STN, and I'll just call it the STN from now on. One has to do with all of the consequences in terms of the research and the conclusions that you come to in the book. But before I ask you about that, you know, you note this in the early pages of the book that you have spent five decades working in the archives of the STN. So what is that like to work in that same place and to return to it as you say you did, you know, summer after summer? I guess I'm wondering what uh, the sort of side history of 
what you've witnessed in terms of the evolution of archival work and some of those other kinds of things, if you have any thoughts about that. Well, yes, I do. First of all, it was fun. Neuchâtel is a lovely city, small city, uh, on the banks of a beautiful lake. Behind it are the Jura Mountains, uh, the mountains across which uh, smugglers took the books into France. Mm -hmm. So a lot of time hiking in the mountains, uh, swimming in the lake, enjoying the local wine, which is very good, Mm -hmm. and especially making friends with the local people. Uh, I spent 14 summers and one winter in Neuchâtel, at first just with my wife, and then my wife and one child, two children, three children. (laughs) Our our kids grew up uh, during the summer in Neuchâtel, and it became honestly a second home. So what is it like? It was an enormous pleasure. I observed generations pass through this tiny little library, Mm -hmm. but at first I was really the only one doing research in the archives, and there was a sense of almost isolation, except I worked with a local uh, Neuchâtelois who was interested in in descriptive bibliography, which is a special, highly technical uh, study, and he he used the same papers, but to study the printing of the books while I concentrated on their diffusion. Anyhow, Jacques Krishner is his name. We sat side by side. We became very close friends. When the library closed for lunch, we would uh, take picnics together on mm. the bank of the lake and go swimming, come back. Our wives joined us. It, it was simply terrific, but Jacques... Uh, died recently, and uh, a lot of the people I knew at the library back in 1965 have disappeared. New people have arrived, and after the publication of some of my first articles and books, other book historians were attracted to Neuchâtel. So I guess you could say I've witnessed, sort of by sitting in the library and looking at manuscript after another, I've witnessed the coming and going of generations. Uh, Now that I look back on it, it it gives me a rich feeling of um, shared experience, but some sadness too, because so many of the people have disappeared. Sure. The other set of questions that I have have to do more with the, the content of, of this work and some of your other work. You know, what is it about the STN archives? What do we get by focusing on the history, on this history from the perspective of a, of a foreign body uh, in terms of understanding French literature in this period? And this big question that you begin with and then return to at the end of the book, how representative was the STN? Right. Why don't I begin by explaining why the SDN existed in the first place? Yeah. It was founded in 1769. Uh, It went through a significant financial crisis in 1783-84, and it really went out of business by 1789 when the press is freed in France, and you no longer, the French, no longer rely on foreign publishers. So maybe I should try to explain why they relied on these publishers outside of France in the first place. I mean, the first point, of course, is censorship. So any book to be published legally in France had to pass through the censors' bureaus and in order to receive what was called an approbation. It was extremely difficult, not merely for ideological reasons, to get 
centers to approve a manuscript, but also for quality control. Believe it or not, the censors spent more time talking about the uh, style of the book, the nature of the argument, the validity of the book as a contribution to whatever the field might be, than they did trying to root out heresy or uh, sedition. Now, why was that? Well, in the first place, if you had written a manuscript that challenged the established authority of the state and the church, you would not have submitted it for censorship in the first place. You would have sent it to one of these presses that existed outside of France. Most uh, books that were at all unorthodox were sent to these publishing houses, which grew up all around France. And I refer to them as a fertile crescent of publishing. Mm -hmm. It extended from Amsterdam through Brussels and Liège, the Rhineland, into Switzerland, the Basel, Bern, but especially Lausanne, Geneva, Neuchâtel. That's where most books that were actually on the book market were produced. And they were produced not merely because of the censorship, and this is where the Enlightenment actually is made and printed, but also because of piracy. And um, I'm now working on the whole subject of piracy. I'm convinced that most books on the market between 1750 and 1789 were pirated. But you, you see my point that yeah. these um, publishing houses, dozens and dozens of them surrounding France were crucial in the production, not just of the Enlightenment, but the production and distribution of all kinds of French literature. And there's also this sort of dimension of, you know, looking at this from the perspective of this foreign publication house gives you or allows you to do this tool de France, like to look at what's coming in. And then the book over the course of its 13 chapters follows the trail of, well, a sales rep who traveled across France from July to November 1778, Jean-Francois Favager. I guess I want to ask what made Favager typical? What made him distinct? What did it mean to be a sales rep in 1778? Um, and how are you accessing his experiences and interactions through the archival materials available uh, at the STN. Well, I should explain that uh, Favarger was really from the lower classes. I mean, he was a sunny peasant, but he was very well educated and then trained as a clerk in the offices of the SDN. So we're dealing with a very much a, a common man, an, an intelligent common man, and a, and a Swiss Protestant uh, whose perspective on the world is particular and interesting. But the reason I, um, I decided to write my book by tracing this Tour de France or this, the travels of this uh, sales rep, what the French call a commis voyageur, mm -hmm. the reason was that he got to know more about the circulation of books than any historian could ever hope to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was simply amazing. He got on his horse in July 1778. He rode into France, and then for five months he visited every bookshop he could find throughout a vast area of southern, eastern, southern, central France. And for me, I thought this would be a way for me to tell a story, a kind of picaresque 
story. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to uh, amuse and interest the reader and not to carry on in some boring academic way. <laughs> but I, I want to get across the academic uh, importance of this too. So I, I originally thought that I would deal systematically with the trade town after town. And in fact, I began writing the book maybe oh, at least 10 years ago uh, by beginning in central France and just discussing the trade of every bookseller, first in Orléans and then in Tours and then Drouard and so on, following the Loire River. And I realized that this would not work. Mm-hmm. I, I was interested in it, but my reader? <laughs> so I was really trying to find a way to communicate the richness of these archives without drowning the reader in detail. And the first thing I did was to actually to create a website. So I have a, a website, which is open access, free to everyone, mm-hmm. where I've hundreds of letters and images and documents and, uh, and material of all kinds that the reader can consult, that frees me from having to get across too much detail in the book. So that was one step. The second step was a decision to use the trip of Favager as a kind of narrative thread. Mm-hmm. Because, it, I mean, it's astonishing. He kept a diary. He was very meticulous. Uh, he recorded everything that he observed in every bookshop he met. He assessed the qualities of the trade in the town as he, after he entered it. He was a kind of industrial spy, in a way, uh, or if you an anthropologist. Um, <laughs> His purpose was not just to sell books, but to know the extent to which a particular bookseller could be trusted, the extent to which certain books were in favor, uh, the extent to which the trade itself was flourishing, and and what the rules of the game were in town after town. So you've got a street-level view of the book trade through the diary and also the correspondence of Favarger. Mm-hmm. And if you like, that's a kind of horizontal picture of the book trade as experienced by a, uh, a, a sales rep, a traveling salesman. But then for each of the stops, I had 20 years' worth of letters of the booksellers, which yeah. provided a vertical dimension. And by putting the two together, the horizontal and the vertical, I think you can have a really very rich view of the way the trade actually operated and what the books actually were. Yeah, and it turns out to be quite a compelling read to follow this character and then all of the characters that he meets. And you use different people that Favage encounters to kind of explore all sorts of different themes. And I guess the first one is this issue of the ambiguity of borders and the fact that the STN is located in Switzerland means that this is also a history of border crossings and border management and smuggling. So could you say a few words about that? Sure. Uh, I found smuggling fascinating, not just in itself, but how it was understood. So if you consider the most developed and professional kind of smuggling, there is a special word for it. Not contrebande in French, but assurance, insurance. Mm. There were 
for insurance entrepreneurs, and they would guarantee to get a book across the border between Switzerland and France if it were seized by the customs officials or these troops of uh, from the, the tax the general tax firm a farm called the Ferme Générale who actually patrolled the border I and mean, they had a small army that did the patrolling. If if the books were seized, then the insurer would pay back their value. So it was an insurance business <laughs> and I come across contracts in which it's all specified how much the insurance would cost and uh, how it could be collected, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about a highly organized industry, but then there were many other techniques. There were endless ways of uh, sneaking the books into France without paying insurance by the, the hiding them in bales, hiding the illegal books along with legal ones, and so on and so on. So I became fascinated with the, the notion of the border itself, because mm -hmm. if you've ever been in French Switzerland or Eastern France and the, the Jura area, you know that uh, first it's very beautiful, it's full of uh, evergreen trees, and it's mountainous. So as you cross the border, you don't really notice any difference in the landscape, in the, in the, in the architecture of the houses, and even in the speech, because there is a local variety of French, which is rather slow and sing-songy. It's only when you get out of the Jura area in France and into Burgundy or in the south into the Bresse country that it seems more like standard French. So in other words, culturally and geographically, borders are not clear places. You shade off from one realm of experience into another. And I tried to explain that uh, experience in the chapter on border crossings, not simply to, to, to show precisely how smuggling operated, but to give the reader a sense of what it's like to be on a horse and move from one world into another world. It is really fascinating the way that in this chapter, and then you come back to it throughout the book, that the reader learns about the material culture of what it meant to transport these books. And, you know, I didn't know, for example, that they weren't bound <laughs> and that uh, these bales of hay and the horses and the actual individuals who transported books or smuggled books, what some of the concerns were about things being damaged or rotting. And then there's also the issue of the actual physical journey and the geography and the landscapes that are explored in the book. But then, you know, what you refer to as the human element to geography, that the challenges in moving books and distributing books were physical and material, but also cultural and interpersonal, you know, that this was a, a set of stories about friendships and feuds and goodwill and networks and roots that are concrete in some sense or physical in some sense, but then also about the relationships between people. Yes, I think the short word for it would be social history. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's the history of everyday life as experienced by 
ordinary people, most of them located near the bottom of the social order. Uh, so that's another of the ambitions of the book. I mean, I, I hope that readers who have no particular interest in the history of literature uh, would enjoy finding out about how people moved around on these primitive roads of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. What it was like to uh, live on a horse for five months. For example, the I have the expense account of Fabergé. He was very careful about every penny he spent. And uh, his culottes, his pants, wore through because there was so much friction in the saddle. Uh, there's a lot about the horse itself, uh, which began slipping on these muddy roads when the rain set in uh, after Bordeaux. Um, and there's a lot uh, also about the way people treated one another and the importance of personal networks, family connections, um, a word that uh, I didn't understand at first, but has turned out to be crucial in getting at human relations in the 18th century, and that's the word confidence. Mm. Confidence was crucial, of course, in commerce, because these people in Neuchâtel are selling books to booksellers whom they've never met, who live hundreds of miles away, and who might not pay their bills. So they, the SDN has to uh, make a guess as to the trustworthiness of these people. And before doing that, that is before sending off bales of books to them worth hundreds of livres in the local, in the currency of that time, they took soundings with local merchants or other booksellers about the degree of confidence they could put in one of their potential customers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sometimes feel I've spent my life writing letters of recommendation. <laughs> I found letters of recommendation from the 18th century. There, there's a, a very intense network created a sort of trade grapevine created through the commercial correspondence. And so you can see people being sized up by their uh, neighbors and uh, fellow tradesmen and the kinds of values that are evoked. I mean, of course, credit, you know, having enough money, but lots of other things such as, well, for example, you shouldn't have too many children. Several letters say, um, he, he's not burdened with too many children. You can count on him honoring his bills of exchange when they become due. There, there are phrases such as, I will defend my signature as I will defend my life. I will honor my signature. The signature is what the way you write your name on the bottom of a bill of exchange, rather like writing a check today. But of course, that signature is a symbolic expression of your business and your character. Uh, it's absolutely crucial. And so there are fascinating discussions of the signature, of honor, of confidence. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we use the word firm for a business, but it really comes from the Italian firma or firmare, which means to sign the signature. So as soon as you begin dealing with any kind of transaction, you're drawn into a value system, a whole world with sets of attitudes and so on that are really quite different from the ones we have today, even though, of course, today 
also is important to have confidence in one another. Mm-hmm. You make the point early on, I think it's in the introduction of the, to the book, that this is really a project that tries to get at the book trade in the provinces rather than emphasizing Paris, as so many histories of France tend to do. So how does this work in the project? And what about this period and or material makes it possible to avoid a Paris-centric view? Well, part of it, of course, has to do with the sources. Um, so the SDM is, of course, dealing with Parisians. Uh, there's wonderful information about the literary life in Paris. Uh, but basically, they're selling books in the provinces. And I think that French social and cultural history has suffered from being too Paris-centered. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> in the case of books, why is this true? Well, it turns out that if you go back to the 17th century, there was a commercial war between the, the provinces and Paris. Cities like Rouen and especially Lyon were great centers of publishing and of culture in general. In the 16th century, I think probably Lyon was every bit as important as Paris. But the Parisians managed to create a de facto monopoly uh, during a trade war that extended right to the beginning of the 18th century. They warred against rival publishers in the provincial capitals, and they had the state behind them. Now, you might say, why? Why did the crown favor Paris over Lyon, Rouen, Marseille, and the others? The answer, although I'm simplifying a little, uh, has to do with Colbertisme, Colbertism, the, the economic policy of Colbert and Louis XIV. So Colbert thought that a monopoly could be better controlled, could enforce quality standards, and would serve the crown best because the guild would be given exclusive privileges for books, also the power to police the book trade, uh, so it would work with the uh, police of the city of Paris to confiscate any illegal books, and the interest of the state and the interest of the Parisian booksellers would work together, but at the expense of the provincials. Now, the result was the provincial booksellers were basically reduced to distributors of books provided by Paris. What the uh, provincial booksellers found out was they could get those same books at a much cheaper price by ordering them from pirate publishers outside of France. Because as soon as a book appeared in Paris that had any selling power, it would be reprinted outside of France and smuggled through this underground into the kingdom, and it could sell at half the price of the French Parisian original. So there's a de facto alliance between provincial booksellers and foreign publishing houses at the expense of Paris. I know that this isn't really a book focused on clients and customers, but we do learn things about the book buyers. What do we learn about them over the course of this book? Well, I wish I could give you a statistical profile of the public of these individual buyers, but I can't. However, there's so many references to the customers in the letters of the booksellers that I think it's really valid to sketch a general picture of who these customers were. I mean, to situate them sociologically. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of professionals, above all, a great many 
lawyers and doctors. There are many administrative officials. The state has got uh, all kinds of civil servants scattered everywhere. Uh, there are quite a few priests. Uh, they buy a lot of even the pornographic books. Huh. Um, there are uh, noblemen. You could say that in general, it's the upper and upper middle layers of French society. The people who will be called notables, notables uh, in the 19th century, and basically the people who made the, led the French Revolution. What you do not find, and I looked hard for them, are uh, a great many uh, merchants. It's true they often, they bought a lot of books in places like uh, Nantes and Bordeaux, but they they really are not central in the in the public for books, and the booksellers often mention that. Now I'm not arguing that these people never read books or that books weren't available to them. There were, for example, cabinets littéraires, that is, book clubs, where for a modest amount of money you could buy books. Uh, throughout the year, and many booksellers use their stock to operate as a kind of lending library. So, in short, I think we are talking about the beginnings of a general reading public, what the French will later call the grand public. But at this stage, it's not all that grand. It's limited, I think, very much to the world of the, of the notables, but there were a lot of them, and they mattered. I guess I want to ask at some point, so this is as good a time as any, what role women play in this story? So as customers, as booksellers, as other intermediaries in this uh, in this history? Well, you know, a lot of historians have been um, involved in the enterprise of chercher la femme. <laughs> Not just feminists, but people with serious interests in social history as well as in feminism. The book trade is particular in that it's built up around guilds. And one of the rules of the guilds is that the widow inherits the business. So in uh, France, for example, the number of printers in Paris is limited to 40. If one of the 40 master printers dies, his widow inherits the mastership, she can hire employees, she can direct the, the, the business. And in fact, if I've done a lot of work on the Parisian side too, uh, you see that the widows really are powerful forces uh, in determining the position of the booksellers' guild. They really, really matter. I found this to be true in the provinces as well, especially, of course, among the larger booksellers. So there's a, the wife of a bookseller called Charmey, in Besançon, uh, sometimes he goes on trips, business trips, she writes the letters. Uh, then he dies, and she takes over the business. And I can follow exactly how she develops a kind of strategy, which I think was much more astute than what her husband had developed. This is very common. Uh, there's a bookseller called Fevre in Ontarier. Uh, he runs into financial difficulties. He can't pay his bills of exchange when they become due. So what does he do? He engineers a kind of divorce, something called a separation of bodies and goods. Because hmm. divorce, of course, was not allowed under the old regime. But by engineering a separation of bodies and goods, you can save your wife's assets 
and indeed her dowry from being confiscated by creditors. And I found this happening several times that a business is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy and then the bookseller arranges a separation with his wife, but in fact that means that they continue to work together. And frequently she takes over the correspondence when he travels or she travels herself. I found a case where Madame Fevre, for example, uh, she and her daughter, when the daughter grew up, would go on the road uh, selling books, collecting bills, uh, and so on. So I found women are really crucial, and sometimes it's fascinating to look at a series of letters because often when the wife takes over the writing of the letters because the husband has died or is traveling, the quality of the French changes. Uh, women with a much less good education, their rate of literacy was significantly lower than that of men. So often the spelling, even the shaping of the letters changes as the women take over, but they can be very canny. There was a wonderful woman in Versailles who specialized in smuggling. I mean, you have to read her letters aloud and listen to the sounds <laughs> that, that you make by sounding out the combinations of letters to know what the letters actually mean. But this woman called Lamu was a very clever tradeswoman and managed to uh, smuggle books under the nose of the king operating out of Versailles. So the, the story of the woman, I think, is really crucial to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And what about regional differences? Can we talk about any general differences between the South and the North, the East and the West? I don't know. I mean, the journey that Favage makes is sort of a circle around the outside of, you know, the hexagon. But is there anything that you would say um, in general about those kinds of differences? Well, it's a very good question. And I looked hard to see if the kind of literature that is most in demand in some areas of France, differs from that of others. Mm. Uh, I find, as you might expect, that books about wine and viticulture are very important in Bordeaux. Uh, in the case of Montpellier, which had a famous faculty of medicine, uh, books about medicine are big. Um, and so you can certainly see clearly a few regional specialties. But... In general, I found that there was no local color to the pattern of orders in one region of France as opposed to another. Hmm. That surprised me. You know, I was looking for it, but honestly, I did not find it. So the books that are ordered in, in Marseille or in Nîmes are not significantly different from those ordered in uh, Bordeaux or Rouen or Troyes. So what to make of this? Hmm. It seems to me that this literary culture, that is to the, the culture represented by trade books, as opposed to religious devotional manuals, that this general trade book literature was the same throughout the country. And therefore that uh, although we know that there are lots of different versions of French, even different languages, mm-hmm. not the like spoken throughout France, that the elite is reading the same general corpus of literature. I guess I was thinking, too, how 
we might think about the revolution differently, how the revolution shakes out in different regions of France and whether or not there's some observable <laughs> distinction or set of differences that we, we might notice about book distribution, you know, what people are reading, how that, that all works in the decades leading up to the revolution, whether the way that the revolution uh, unfolds in different parts of France is connected to that. But it sounds like there's no clear pattern that would link those two. No, I don't see a clear pattern, although I was looking for one. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of seditious books that are sold, and they sell everywhere. I mean, they are hot tickets. So that, you know, People are very eager to read about the private life of Louis XV, uh, or often to um, atheistic treatises, such as the uh, Système de la Nature. So you've got um, a, a huge demand for illegal books, but it doesn't correspond to the different character of the revolution in, uh, let's say, southwest France as mm-hmm. opposed to northern France. It just, you, you, I don't think you can map political uh, radicalism in a way that would correspond to the map of the diffusion of books. I was also really intrigued reading, Bob, about Favage and how we're learning about book distribution and these exchanges and interactions, but we're also learning about other things as we follow him. We're learning about what inns were like. We're learning about um, clothes. We're learning about even glimpses of the personality of this sales rep. Could you say a little bit about some of those things that you found along the way and and uh, and how these sources reveal things about Fabergé himself and other aspects of everyday life in, in France in this period? Well, you do sense the fabric of everyday life just by reading his expense account. Yeah. For example, when he's in Marseille, he spends money to get his pistols refurbished because he needs to go to Toulon, and the main route between Marseille and Toulon is infested with robbers, brigands or highwaymen. Why? Because the silk trade in Lyon to the north is going through a very difficult period, and he's told that a lot of silk workers have turned to highway robbery. Mm -hmm. So it's dangerous to travel around. I mean, he never had any real trouble, but he's on the alert. Um, You can't relax when you're traveling. And also, he doesn't talk a lot about the lice in the bed because he's, remember, that's kind of working class or semi-working class person writing to his social superiors, right. his boss back in the chateau. So he doesn't, it would be incorrect for him to go into a lot of personal detail. But, uh, well, for example, he only had his laundry done twice in five months. I mean, he must have smelled terribly. <laughs> and he had to a couple of times he bought a ribbon to tie in the back of his hair, so he wasn't the kind who would have a wig or wear a sword, but still he had to be presentable when uh, he called on a bookseller, and he describes what it's like for him, a man of the people, to walk into an elaborate bookshop in, say, Lyon, and he, he senses how these uh, big shot uh, bourgeois condescend to him. They don't have time to talk with him. They say, come back later. Um, they spend forever over their dinner, which is in the middle of the day, and sometimes don't even show up in the afternoon. He's very sensitive to uh, social nuances. And of course, he's a Protestant. 
So he, he gets to Marseille, for example, on the day of the Assumption of the Virgin, which is being celebrated by the ships in the harbor um, shooting their cannons. And he describes hearing these cannon shots by the papists as if he's in uh, really a very, very alien territory, mm-hmm. which he was. But all, all along the way, he finds Protestants, Huguenot, who help him out. So the religious complexion is quite important. He actually hears um, the famous uh, Protestant leader, Rabot, preach in the desert, as it was called, outside of Nîmes. There's just, just one episode after another shows you a, a quite ordinary person trying to find his way to, to, to find a path through the complexities of the society of the old regime, but it's expressed expressed in very concrete terms. Mm-hmm. So that's especially fascinating. Well, and just to follow up on Favache, how and why does his journey for the STN end? And then what happened to him after this was over? Ah, well, I, I of course, he disappears from the SDN archives, but there are archives in the city of Neuchâtel. So I went there and went through um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, documents by notaries and at last discovered that he set up a, a kind of fancy grocery business with his brother. He got married. He had at least one son, and I could even follow the son who got in trouble later on, and Favre had to discipline him as a father. So you can reconstruct a lot of his life uh, thanks to other sources. Mm-hmm. In other words, you've got a quite ordinary fellow who's quite literate, went, you know, went to a good local Protestant school, has good handwriting, and can be trusted with a huge assignment five months on a horse to dealing with all of these uh, booksellers, he can be trusted to be level-headed, clear-eyed, um, sober, uh, and get the job done. Having done it, he then went into business for himself, and um, I have some information about the house he bought, uh, the woman he married, etc. He, he found a place for himself in the middle of the middle class, if you like, mm-hmm. in this a Protestant world of Neuchâtel in the late 18th century. So I, I have to admit I developed a lot of sympathy for him. Um, you return at the end of the book, Bob, to this big question, you know, what was the demand for literature in France on the eve of the revolution? And I guess I have two questions stemming from that. One is, what were the hottest titles? And the other, you know, has to do with this issue of the book's relationship and this history's relationship to the revolution, you know, how does it change, if it does, the way we might think about the origins of the revolution, and what did the revolution change for this world that the book takes us on a tour of? Yeah, those are tough questions. (laughs) To simplify, I have, at the end of the book, statistics. I mean, I try not to bore the reader with too much, uh, too many numbers. Uh, The reader can go to my website and get lots of detail. I would actually claim that my bestseller list is as good as most bestseller lists published in the New York Times. <laughs> uh, I traced the demand for 1,145 titles. 
So that's a huge corpus of books. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the bestsellers are, show a very interesting mixture of different kinds of literature. You have, indeed, a lot of books that were known as livres philosophiques, philosophical books. That's a technical term used by the booksellers themselves. It covered not just philosophy, the works of the Enlightenment, but also everything really illegal, everything dangerous, like the private life of Louis XIV, or the number one bestseller, Anecdotes about Madame du Barry. Mm. It's a, a scandalous account of her life, but it's full of political comments and information about uh, French politics. The Enlightenment is everywhere, lots of works by Voltaire and Rousseau. But there's a huge amount of travel literature. There's a huge amount of history. In fact, travel and history sort of shade off into each other in the 18th century. Mm. And then novels, of course, I think that specialists in French literature had a lot to learn from what books were actually, what novels were actually circulating. There were some famous writers whose works sold well. La Clos, the Liaison Dangereuse, for sure. example, or, or Marmontel, Les Incas, the Incas. But the ones that, that I saw cropping up most often are writers who have been pretty well forgotten. Madame Ricardoni, for example, she sold, she wrote sentimental novels about love themes. Mm. She sold books like crazy. Uh, they were pirated everywhere. I think that if you want to know the kind of middle range of ordinary literature that had tremendous appeal among ordinary readers, read the works of Madame Ricardoni. Science is important. In chemistry, uh, Pierre-Joseph uh, Macaire, who's not much considered today, we think of Lavoisier, not of Macaire, but Macaire outsold him. Dictionaries, reference books of all sorts. So you've got really every variety of literature showing up. And the ones that had potential ideological wallop were, I think, of two kinds. One, actual philosophical treatises which saw the world as a place to be decoded by reason and that was revealed to be uh, completely the product of natural forces without any spiritual hand guiding them. And then, secondly, um, these libelous attacks on courtiers, ministers, the king himself, and the royal mistresses. Right. So I think that is relevant to the other question you raised about the um, origins of the revolution. Mm -hmm. As I said, what I set out to do in this book was to recreate the whole world of books and the cultural intermediaries who made that world operate. I do not set out to answer the questions about the ideological origins of the revolution. Mm -hmm. I think that that way I could get a more uh, objective view of things. But of course, there is a connection between what people read and actual events. Mm -hmm. But what is the nature of that connection? I don't <clears throat> believe at all in linear causality. So there is no valid argument, in my opinion, that goes from printing a book to distributing the book to selling it to reading it 
to the formation of values on the part of the leader and then to collective consciousness on the part of the general leading public and finally to action. I mean, I just don't think that argument can be made. But it seems to me that if you look at the whole corpus of literature that was actually circulating in France, you sense a tendency to picture the world as a place where there are tremendous abuses of power, tremendous injustices, a world that is not really defensible from the point of view of the church and the state. Mm. And that stands in contrast to an imaginary world, and in some cases, even a utopia. So one of the most popular books of all, it comes in number two, I think, on my list, is The Year 2440. That's the title mm-hmm. of a terrific fellow by Louis-Sébastien Mercier. He describes Paris as he imagines it. Uh, it's a kind of Rip Van Winkle thing. He falls asleep, wakes up in the year 2440, and is shown around a Paris, which has become truly utopian. Hmm. That is to say, it's a just society. There are no gimmicks, you know, there are no, there's no technology as we have in our notions of the future. Paris is ruled by virtue, a civic spirit of the Rousseau kind. Um, now, Mercier wrote another book called The Tableau de Paris, uh, a huge bestseller as well, mm-hmm. which is simply a description of what Paris is like in the present. It's muddy, it's nasty, it's smelly, it's cruel. If you put put these two books together and compare them, you get a sense of what society should be and what it's like. Well, I think that kind of comparison is working throughout the entire body of literature. And that is predisposing people to be ready to accept a fundamental change in the way society is organized and government is run. Mm -hmm. So that disposition, it seems to me, is crucial and is utterly different from the kind of predisposition or set of values and attitudes that prevailed in the 17th century. So I'm not saying that books caused the revolution. It's a formula that Roger Chartier, my friend, likes to use. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that books are a necessary condition for the revolution, but of course you have to take into account things like the price of bread and the collapse of the elite as it uh, turns against the crown. I mean, it's a very complex thing. But literature has its place, I think, in this complexity. And the world in this book, is it brought to an end by the revolution? It is, really. The press is free, but it's free de facto because the whole apparatus of censorship and police simply is smashed by the taking of the Bastille and the other riots throughout the spring and summer of 1789. So by the fall of 1789, the presses in Paris and all over France are producing what the French want to read. Now, they want to read about politics and about the fundamental changes going on around them. So you've got much less production of sentimental novels and much more in the way of well, pamphlets and journals. I think that uh, you know the revolution is, is such a powerful political and social transformation that the kind of literature that existed before 1789 
isn't tenable. And from 1800 on, or especially from 1815 on, it will be a different literary world. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, there's so many things I could ask you and would like to ask you about, but I'll just ask you one more question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually uh, writing a, a sort of follow-up book, which has to do with the the publishers more specifically, how they worked out strategies, how they thought, and particularly about piracy. You know, we need to get inside the workings of a pirate publisher to understand what piracy was and the whole editorial side of things. So this is really, I don't call it volume two because I'm not thinking of them as a single work, but they are quite complementary. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll look forward to reading it um, when it comes out, and maybe you'll come back and speak to me about it. Bob, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this book. Well, thank you for having me.